You can turn to Mark chapter 1 if you have your Bibles. And I hope you do have your Bibles. Um, I'm going to read chapter 1, verses 9 through 20 this morning. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, and they were fish, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the, the nets. And immediately he called them, and they, followed their father, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Every time a, a new administration takes over in Washington, they always make much of their first 100 days. They make promise, in the first 100 days, I'm going to do this, and after 100 days, they start to evaluate, well, how, did they, how have they done? What can we learn about their agenda? What have we seen about what they want to accomplish? You kind of see the direction that they want to take. And I kind of get a sense of this here as we uh, open up into Mark in this first chapter. Mark is kind of leading us along in what we might call kind of the, the first hundred days of King Jesus' administration. Last week was the inauguration ceremony with his baptism. And um, as we go through Mark, you're going to find that uh, there's a word that keeps coming up, and that word is immediately. There's a, there's a pace in the book of Mark that's very quick. It moves from one event to the next event to the next event, verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him. Then verse 12, and the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. That word shows up 41 times in the, in the Gospel of Mark. And the Gospel just seems to be a, a book of action. It's Jesus did this, then Jesus did that, then Jesus did this. Not always even spending a lot of time on those events. It just keeps us moving at a quick pace. I want us to, I think that, number one, I think that keeps the main point, the main point Mark is trying to make. This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus has done, and this is why it matters. And, uh, and so as we go through the book of Mark, you'll notice I'm going to be taking larger sections at a time, because I think the, the book is moving quickly, and if I were to just slow it down too slow, I'd feel like I'm just kind of moving slow motion through a, a fast-paced book, and always trying to pull the reins back on it. So kind of, kind of, we want to keep pace with the way Mark has written his gospel. 
Well, I want to review where we were last week. Last week was really focusing in on the identity of Jesus, on the identity of Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he is the anointed one, he is the king that the nation of Israel has been waiting for and anticipating. Number two, he's the son of God. All right, he's the Messiah who's the son of David, who is also the son of God as described in Psalm chapter 2. Jesus is Lord. John the Baptist is making way, uh, making, uh, declaring the coming of the Lord. He's not just a man. He's more than a man. He's the man who is God. He's the God of Abraham and Moses and Elijah. He's the, Jesus is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit, the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. He's, Jesus is the Son of God who is approved by the Father. The voice from heaven opens up, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus is the one who is empowered by the Spirit to accomplish his mission. We looked at that last week. Before I jump into verse 12, I want to just take a few minutes in the introduction here to talk a little bit about the word gospel and the word kingdom. What is the relation between these words? Because this is important, because we're going to see in verse um, actually 15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom, is at, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. The whole concept of the Messiah's arrival is wrapped up in kingdom language. When Jesus talked about the gospel, he talks about it in relationship to the gospel, or the kingdom and the gospel are related. Now, the reason why I want to talk about this is because I think rarely do I hear us give significant consideration to how the gospel relates to the kingdom of God. I include myself in that. When I talk about believe the gospel, I, I don't say kingdom very often. But yet you see Jesus talk that way. I think it's pretty common for Americans in general to speak that way. To think about the gospel, I'll say primarily, and in some cases perhaps only, in relationship to their own individual relationship with God. About my personal sin and my personal redemption through Jesus Christ. And I want to be clear that the gospel is about personal salvation through the message of the cross and the resurrection. And it is about individuals who need to be born again and whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. For by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works that no one can boast. Like we, we use that verse often to talk about the fact that you need to be saved and you're saved by grace through faith alone. And Jesus did come to save, so he can save the lost. He's going to forgive sinners. But what I think we lack at times is a connection between all of that personal salvation work and the promise of the kingdom of God. He had it in verse 15. Or when we think about the individual work of being born again, we think of John 3, truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says, unless someone is born again, he cannot what? See the kingdom of God. Right there, he's making a connection between you need to be born again to see the kingdom of God. Unless you are experiencing number one, that personal salvation, you will not experience number two, the kingdom. Personal salvation is a part of that larger kingdom plan. 
and that kingdom plan is much larger than we tend to think, especially us as very individualistic people. The plan is ultimately to restore all things in heaven and earth under Christ. Colossians 1, for in him Christ, speaking of Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, not just, in the, not just you and me, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Like They're tying that work to the cross itself. That's not something extra. That's tied up in the work of Christ's work, um, the work of Christ on the cross. That's what that reconciling, reconciling work accomplishes more. It accomplishes more than just saving you and me as individuals. It's expansive. To cover the smallest soul to the greatest nation, to all the unseen realms in this world and every nation that we can see with our eyes. The redemptive work on the cross is to save sinners. That save sinners is also the work that crushes Satan's head. It is also the work that leads to the Messiah going to sit on the throne of David. It also will result in, the gov- in a government of peace. It'll, it establishes a new covenant. It is leading us to the point where there will be a whole new creation as a result of the cross. So the gospel is a huge word. And the implications are vast and wide and are are as large as the kingdom of God is. And I think because we lack a strong connection in our minds and in our hearts between that personal work of the gospel and the kingdom work of the gospel, that a lot of Christians are kind of aimless in in their walk with the Lord. I think it leads to a, and even an, maybe an emptiness in the Christian life. Because we can be so wrapped up in like my own personal journey with Jesus that I give little consideration to the mission of Jesus in the world. And I'm sure you can relate to that. Just, what's the Lord doing in your life? Me, me and Jesus. It's just like my little personal relationship, he died for my sins, I'm struggling with this sin, and I hope God changes this in me, and I'll be great, I'm going to be more holy, I'm going to get to heaven. Like, like it's just so me-focused that we're like, whoa, but like open up a little bit, look around you and see what God is doing in the world. He came to establish a kingdom that covers everything. There's a kingdom being built. A new creation is coming. The king is returning to finish what he started 2,000 years ago. And his return is not just about you. Not to burst your bubble. But it's about putting on display all things to the praise of his glorious grace. And I think that's why sometimes there are Christians who are wasting their Christian life on such small, little, petty things that aren't much bigger than them as individuals. Some of those things are sinful things. Some of those things are just distractions from the fact that there is a greater work being accomplished around them. 
There are many Christians who are happy to be saved, but are forgotten that there's a kingdom at hand that Jesus is establishing. You've heard it before. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Implied there are things that we can do that will last. There are things that are going to last for eternity because they are part of a kingdom whose foundations cannot be shaken. I'm, I'm working to advance something that's going to last. I can work to advance my career. I can work to advance my savings. I can work to advance a lot of things in this life that if they are done for, for selfish and security uh, and, and just my own selfish pleasure, then they're not, they're not going to last. And I need that reminder all the time. It seems like the, the older I get, the more I need that reminder, in fact. Because there are so many things that grab for our attention. Have a little more of that. Watch one more of one of these. It's totally worth to watch that show for eight hours tonight. Or whatever. You know? Not going to last. point is this. There is something glorious to live for in this life. And if I can't see past myself, I'm not going to know that because I'm not that glorious. Like Jesus is glorious. His kingdom is glorious. It's big. It's expansive. It goes on forever and nothing's going to defeat it. And I can be engaged and I'm called to engage in that kind of work. That will give a Christian some direction. That's just kind of the introduction. Um, Mark is going to make, summarize Jesus' ministry and what Jesus went around preaching in that verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. You see that. You see the personalness and the vastness of it. There's a kingdom with a personal message to repent and believe. The kingdom is at hand. Now you personally need to repent and believe the good news. That's the way the world is getting turned upside down through that message. So if we're going to talk about the kingdom, we have to finish like where we left off last week, and that is talking about the king. So the opening scenes of Mark are really kind of like that first 100 days in office. I kind of approach it that way. So number one, the king's Victory, the king's victory. This is verses 12 and 13. So last week was the king's baptism. It was his inauguration ceremony. There the father announces, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And day one of his administration is to go into the wilderness and do battle with Satan. It says the Holy Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness I mean, that's a strong word here. So in, in, at the baptism, he empowers him, the Holy Spirit, and, the, and right after that, the Holy Spirit comes upon him and sends him out, drives him out into the wilderness. There's no celebration. There's no honeymoon period. Just kingdom work that needs to be accomplished at the beginning. So mission number one of the king is do battle with Satan. Now, one point is very obvious and right on the surface. 
what we're supposed to see about Jesus in this. And that's this. The battle of the kingdom is a spiritual battle between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. You look at Jesus' ministry. He does not come to do battle with petty tyrants and emperors and soldiers and, or Herod. He never picks up a sword to fight those. He is here to attack the root of the darkness behind all those forces. He is here to attack the root of the spiritual forces of evil in this world. Because when we look at the world, we see kings, we see princes, we see um, a degrading of, of society, we see unjust laws, we see all kinds of sin in this world when we look around with our eyes. And we have to be reminded that these are only symptoms of a true, deeper evil below the surface. Because we're going to think about kingdom work, we have to think, be reminded that the kingdom work is spiritual work. That's why, like, just the pursuit of man's natural attempts to do things of eternal, eternal value will fall short if they, if they do not remember that this is spiritual work. If they're thinking like, well, if we could just change people's behaviors, if we could just get them to read the right books, if we could just, you know, it's a battle of ideas. I'm not saying there aren't ideas around, but I'd never say it's a battle of ideas. It's a spiritual battle that is fought in Jesus' name. We battle on our knees with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and we have Jesus on our lips. And I'm emphasizing Jesus specifically here for a reason. Because, again, there are lots of efforts to do good things in the world, but don't talk about Jesus. And if you're leaving him out of the picture, it tells me you don't understand the picture. You don't understand the battle. You're fighting the wrong battle. Because it's a battle that is fought in Jesus' name. With the weapons of war that Jesus gave us to fight. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, right? I mean, that should be on the front page of whatever news source you go to. Like, step, you know, put on your phone or above your TV, or whatever it is. Like, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood because everything you're consuming is telling you you are. They're saying, here's, here's the enemy here. Here's the enemy there. And, and I'm not saying there aren't enemies of the gospel out there. But what the solution is starts with understanding that this is a spiritual battle that we're engaged in. It's not just people. And so what's the first thing Jesus does in his ministry is to go out and fight the spiritual battle against Satan himself. There's a reason why, and it's true, there's a reason why the church doesn't, obviously doesn't get this. Because it, it's, it's true, we all know it. Were there to be some political 
event. And then there were to be a prayer event. Just tell me which one will be more attended. Just tell me which one. Obviously, like times 10. And it's, a, it's just a, it's a symptom of the fact that we don't understand. I'm not saying don't go to a political event. But I'm saying if we're not in prayer... Our emphasis is wrong. Like we're not seeing what we're trying. What, what, what needs to be? How is what needs to be accomplished going to be accomplished for the sake of God's kingdom? I think the American church is very much more pragmatic than it is prayerful. It's like this is what I can do. Here's the steps we can take. Boom, 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 boom. If we just do these, and we need to be careful that we're not falling into the trap of thinking or forgetting that what we're ultimately engaged in is a spiritual war. So I think that's what's like right on the surface here of the text. Like this is clearly what's being done here with Jesus in these opening verses. But there's more going on to this. This is the first thing. This is at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus that Jesus goes out and does battle with Satan. Can you think of any story in the Bible that begins with an engagement with Satan, and the key word is beginning, all right? Adam and Eve, right? Go, to the, go back to the garden. What do you find? You, say, you see that God created Adam and Eve, put them in the garden, gave them the, the paradise to, to live in without sin, without death, and then Satan shows up into that paradise to do battle with Adam. And what does Adam do? He trusts Satan. He sins. He loses the battle and plunging humanity into sin and death. Or to make it, I think the image that we see here in Mark, he, he plunged humanity into the wilderness of sin and death. And now Jesus enters the wilderness of this world, and at the beginning of his, his, his ministry, he enters into the wilderness wasteland of Judea, and it is a wilderness. When you pass through it, you're not thinking like, I'd love to buy some property here. This would be a great place to build a house. You're just like, let's just get through it to get to the other side because it is a desert wilderness. So he walks in the wilderness among the animals just like Adam was in the garden and goes face to face with the same adversary who attacked Adam in the garden. In the garden, Satan battles with Adam. In the wilderness, Satan battles with Jesus. And the Bible makes a connection between Adam and Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the second, I'm sorry to say, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The New Testament tells us that there is a first Adam who represents humanity and plunged humanity into sin and death, and then there is a second Adam who comes, who then restores what was broken by the first Adam. The first Adam, on behalf of mankind, lost the battle. And the second Adam, on behalf of mankind, won the battle in the wilderness, setting the course of the earth to return it back to a paradise without sin and death.
in the wilderness, Jesus begins to reverse the curse. Where Adam failed, Jesus won. Where Adam brought sin, Jesus brought righteousness. Where Adam made a wilderness out of perfection, Jesus is making a new creation out of the wilderness. And he is a representative. Adam is a representative of fallen man, and Jesus is a representative of redeemed man. Romans 5.8 says, Therefore, as one trespass, speaking of Adam, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, speaking of Jesus, leads to the justification and life for all men. So in Adam's sin, made us all sinners. In Adam's loss, we all lose. And now in Christ, fallen man is able to have the victory and to have righteousness. So this is what Jesus does before he preaches a sermon, before he heals someone who is sick. He enters as our representative into a battle with Satan to rescue those who are cursed because of the sin of the first Adam. So in his victory, we will find ours. This is a a foundational stone of the identity of Jesus, that he is the second Adam. Point number two, the king's message. All right, so up to this point, the, uh, Mark has been talking about the identity of Jesus. And now we find for the first time Jesus speaking and giving us his message. So Mark summarizes what Jesus' sermons have all been about. And he says, you know, this, this messianic kingdom that the nation has been waiting for has come and the time is fulfilled. In other words, the time has arrived. It's not like, oh, like the time just passed and something happened. It was like, this is now the historic moment of all of history. The time has now come. The Messiah is now here. These are historic days where the king is now beginning to assert his authority. He's going to exercise authority over demons, over sickness, over Satan, over religious leaders. Ultimately, he's going to exercise his authority over sin and death itself. These are all just the first signs of the kingdom coming. They're the first fruits of what the kingdom produces. Territory is being gained. And the response that Jesus calls for because of this, in verse 15, is repentance and faith. Repentance and believe the gospel. Before the kingdom occupies the earth, it's going to occupy men's hearts. That's how the kingdom grows, one repentant sinner at a time. So repent, he says. Spoke about that last week. True repentance recognizes that my sin is an offense against God. It's not just my my sin is a mistake that, yeah, I hurt some people. I feel bad that you feel bad. That's not repentance. Repentance is, I understand that I have sinned against God. And that I need to be cleansed of that sin. And that I need to turn from my sin and look to Christ. To recognize Him as the Lord and Savior that He is. He's he's always calling sinners to trust and to turn to Him. Which is belief. Believe in the good news. Believe in the, the message of the Messiah that He has come. 
Someone asked me after the first service, well, what, you know, when we say gospel, we're thinking the death and resurrection and the cross. The gospels are an explanation of that. So when Jesus came preaching the gospel, they didn't know that part yet. That was his life was for, to teach them what the word gospel meant. At this point, they're recognizing the king is here, and all the promises of the kingdom are coming, are arriving. But they were to believe that he was the Messiah, and he was going to tell them. John the Baptist is going to say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Believe that Jesus' message, that he came as a, to give his life as a ransom for many, and that, he'd be, that he would rise again for their salvation. So faith is receiving, it's, it's treasuring, it's, it's seeking Jesus, it's crying out to Jesus to be everything that, you, you, that your soul needs for life. And repentance and belief are not one-time, are not merely one-time actions. It shouldn't be, I'm a Christian because I repented and I believed when I was 10. Now that may be true, that you are a Christian because you repented and believed when you were 10. But when Jesus is calling people to repent and believe, he's not just talking about a one-time decision. He's saying, he's calling his people to be repenting and be believing. I mean, that's the Christian life, right? He didn't stop that when you were 10. Hopefully you did it this week. Everybody in this room, I hope, repented and believed this week. That your life is a, is, is, is a constant turning to Jesus. I constantly need to do that. Because I'm tempted to be drawn to something else. I need to be like, oh, Lord, forgive me again. I did it again. I'm turning towards you. Like, that's the Christian life. It is a life of repenting and believing. That's what the gospel message is. Keep trusting in Jesus. Keep turning from your sin. Keep going after the worthless things that are killing you. You know? That's good news. Every individual in this room needs to make that decision to repent and believe the good news of the Savior King who died and rose again and is calling you into his kingdom. And just, I'm just going to touch briefly on this little note about John being arrested in verse 14. He says, you know, this, and now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming this. I mean, it could just be like a historical marker for a, for a timeline. But remember, this is being written to Christians who are suffering. Some of which may be dying for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of this message that Jesus is preaching. And those Christians and we as Christians in this generation need to be reminded that we should not, when you believe this, when you repent and believe in the gospel, do not expect people to applaud you. Do not expect it to not only that, perhaps they will arrest you. Perhaps they will kill you. Jesus, John was faithful. What happened to him? He died. Jesus was faithful. What happened to him? He died. Paul was faithful. What happened to him? In the first hour, some of you were there. Uh, Gabe was, and Jeremy were 
teaching the class on evangelism, and uh, Gabe told me the story that they went and you were passing out tracts at the fair yesterday, and um, one of the high schoolers, every every person he tried to hand a, hand a tract to said no. And I'm like, ah, oh, well, that's that's good. Not good, but sorta. Like he learned he was. He learned that the world is not going to welcome that all the time. Like, you may go to somebody, they're going to say, I don't want to hear it from you. And that's, that should be expected. If they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. The world may not always welcome the message of the kingdom. Number three, the king's men, verses 16 through 20. So the point, the first point, Jesus is the second Adam who won the victory over Satan. Point number two, Jesus has come with a message of repentance and belief in the gospel. And then Jesus has a method for establishing his kingdom. He has a method, his men. He's going to advance the work of his kingdom by calling men to engage in that work. And Mark like he's going through, through, to, through the rest of his gospel, he's going to speak very plainly and directly. He doesn't, he's not going to cover the fact that these men had any previous relationship. He's just going to say, and then he called these fishermen to follow him. He chooses them and gives them their message. Simon and his brother Andrew and James and his brother John. They're doing their fishing work on the Sea of Galilee, and he calls out to them and says, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. The first group immediately follows. And then it says that Jesus immediately went to the next group. So boom, boom, this is what happens. Jesus speaks and they respond. They're going to be his method for bringing the message of the kingdom to the world. I think it's pretty clear as we're going to see in what Jesus does following here. Jesus has all the authority in the room. He says, you follow me. And then you have a responsibility to respond. I'm going to give you a new job. You're not going to fish for fish anymore. You're going to fish for men. I'm going to give you a new assignment. And that new assignment is going to be reaching men with my message of the kingdom to repent and believe the gospel. I'm always careful to not elevate being a pastor to more significant kingdom work. In other words, God calls everybody, God calls people to serve him in every capacity. Doctors, teachers, builders, nurses, whatever. I mean, God has, a, has given a variety of gifts to a, 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 a church full of many people. But Jesus does call these four men to something specific. He calls them to leave their earthly occupation. There were likely hundreds of fishermen on, that, on the Sea of Galilee. And probably some of those fishermen followed Jesus. We're believers in Jesus. But some of the men, he said, I want you to leave your nets. 
I want you to leave your boats. I want you to leave your father's occupation. And I want you to leave them, and I want you to follow me. And that would be a scary um, decision. I mean, leave everything you know. And we get the, we get the from John and um, James... They were with their father in a boat with hired servants, probably a, a, a successful fishing business. I want you to leave all those things, and I want you to follow me. And a church our size, there should be among us people who get that call from Jesus. The call says, I actually want you to leave what you're currently doing. And I want you to follow me. I want you to drop your, your nets. I want you to drop your occupation. I want you to, to drop, drop your ambition to be a doctor, to be a whatever it may be. I'm not, I, I don't think that call goes to every, every Christian, but sometimes these will call out individual Christians. It says, I have a work for you to do that will be committed full time to doing this work of being a fisher of men. Pastors, evangelists, church planters, missionaries. I have no doubt in my mind that there are people here who should be hearing that call from Jesus. There should be some among us who say, who are confident saying, I know the Lord has me where I'm at. I'm 100% certain I've prayed about it, and this is where the Lord has me, and that's absolutely right. But everybody in this room should be saying, Lord, is there something else that you would have me do? Should I actually drop my nets and go? Should I drop my nets and change gears to go a different direction, perhaps in a full-time capacity? Again, I, again I'm usually slow to, to, to call that out in particular because I don't, because I want everyone to be where God wants them to be. But every person should be asking that question. And it can be a scary question to ask. When I asked it the first time, or when I began to wrestle with that in my own life, I was like kind of scary. I remember feeling kind of scared about it. I don't know. I was, it was like an unfamiliar territory to me. I, didn't, I, didn't, I wasn't close with the, any pastors in my life prior to that. It just seemed like, but the Lord wanted me to go into ministry. And I remember sitting down with Pastor Lily at the time. And saying, I think I expressed it to him first. I think the Lord wants me to go into ministry. And I was just like, this is, I'm nervous to say it for some reason. But you don't have to be 19. You know our missionaries, the Coopers, Mike and Brenda Cooper. Uh, some of you know them. They're missionaries in uh, New Zealand. They went over when they were in their 50s. And he had a really successful career, actually. He was doing very well. And they're like, all right, Lord, if you're calling us to leave that behind, we're willing to go. And they, you know, they took the, English, you know, the um, language test and did like the worst that any missionary has ever done on a language test. So they're like, we're going to go to an English-speaking country, you know. And they did, and they were willing to go and willing to live and willing to die there. That's where they're going to plan to live out the rest of their life. Not all of us are going to be called to do that, but some of us are. So I do challenge you to be asking that question. 
of your own life? Or would we as a couple, would me as an individual be one that you might call to leave our boats, leave our nets, and follow you in this way? And if the answer is no, which I know it will be for many in this room, I'll tell you this, though. Some people may leave their nets. I encourage you to at least leave your couch. All right? Like, don't just sit back and say it's somebody else's job to do that work. There are people in nursing homes. There are people in children's classrooms. There are neighbors. There are people you work with who need, need to know who Jesus is and need to know that there's a kingdom that's coming that they need to be ready for. So there's no excuse for anyone to miss out on that call that Jesus gives to follow him, to proclaim that. And you know what? The ones who followed Jesus in the first century, a lot of them died. And you know what? It was worth it all. And you have to be told that. You have to tell yourself that. That I may lose out on something, fill in the blank, whatever that thing is that you think you need to have, that you know doesn't matter. And say, but to lay at the feet of Jesus and to follow him where he calls me is worth it all. Even if it means I die. So we have a king who's victorious. He fights our battles for us. He fought it in the wilderness, resisted the temptation of Satan. We have a king who preaches repentance and faith. The kingdom is at hand. The call to believe the gospel. We have a king who gives us a mission to be a follower of him, to be fishermen of men, to do the work that matters for eternity, to not be aimlessly wandering around saying, I don't know what God wants me to do. Well, if you don't know, then come see me. We'll talk. I got some ideas. All right? Go to God. His word's full of ideas. And I'll help you see what's there, and we'll do it. The point is, there is something he calls us to. There's a mission and a method, and it's through people to do it. And these things matter for eternity. So may we take them with that weight. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have promised us a kingdom that can never be shaken. You're delivering it through your son. He is the king. He is the one who's working in this world, even today, to change, to restore all things in him. I want us to see that, Lord. Even as we go into communion now, Remind us that it is through the cross that you accomplish these things. That it is through the death and resurrection of your son that we have life and that this world will not remain as it is, but one day be made new. Give us the eyes of faith to see it. In Jesus' name, amen.